Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by one of my favorite family-owned companies. Blue Sky World Leaders are designed for anglers who want a long-lasting leader. Blue Sky leaders are measured by the season, while the life of conventional monoliters can often be measured in days or even minutes. Each of Blue Sky's furled tapered leaders are handwoven in the USA from over 90 feet of premium nylon material. From here, they are individually inspected and tested before packaging to ensure the highest quality standards. Check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. Kevin Feenstra is a longtime guide on the Muskegon River. Though he won't be the one to say it, Kevin was at the forefront of swinging flies for steelhead in the Midwest. I met with Kevin at his home on the Muskegon last November to see if I could learn a little more about this private man. I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was raised in Granville, Michigan, which we sometimes call the Dutch ghetto. It's (laughs) <laughs> Actually, a nice small town that's now become essentially part of Grand Rapids. So. Did you grow up fishing? I did. I started fishing when I was uh, quite young with my brothers. When I was about 12 years old, my great uncle died, and he gave my dad all his fly fishing gear. And because my dad didn't really fly fish, he gave it to me. So that was how I started fly fishing. So how did you learn how to use all this gear? I, as a little kid, was a very avid reader. And at the time, you know, there was no internet or anything like that. So I would go to the local library and I would read uh, about as much fly fishing as I could once I started fly fishing. 
and that's how I learned. I never took a fly tying class or anything like that. It was all through books. Now, is that how you learned? I'm just going to kind of jump forward here, and then I'll, I'll step back. But is that how you learned about swinging flies then, by reading? Inadvertently, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I wanted to catch a steelhead. We had a small creek that ran through the area, and I saw all these people on TV catching steelhead, and it was always fly fishing video, so I wanted to catch a steelhead in, on, a, on a fly, and the only books that were available at the time were West Coast books. You know, now we have a wide array of Great Lakes materials, and there's a lot more access now, both through written stuff and the internet, but... That wasn't the case back then. No, definitely was not. So who comes to mind first and foremost when you think about a book that really influenced you when you were growing up? Well, when I really started becoming avid at Swinging Flies, it was actually a Trey Combs book in my early 20s. And that one, uh, I, I think I still have it, but it was a great influence on me. I read a lot of Jim Teeny's stuff. You know, I when I met him as a in my mid-twenties, I, I thought, what a great person to meet and to learn something from, too. My whole mission right now is trying to get younger people to start sure. reading again. And I try to explain to them, you know, you can only find so much online. You can find a lot online, but a lot of the information that is in these old books, you if you don't read them, you're not going to find it. And it's very credible information, too, which online you have to sift. That's right, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's straight from the horse's mouth in a lot of those books. And Trey, for example, was able to sit down with a lot of those guys before they are gone. Yep. I'm thrilled to hear that you're a history buff. This makes me, this <laughs> makes me, this just makes my whole day. So may I ask how old you are? I am 42 years old. You've been doing this then for the swinging flies, you figure, for? You know, the first one I caught swinging flies was actually in my teen years, you know, late, early, probably mid-teens. Um, the first couple steelhead I caught on flies were swinging flies, and then I it did what people that age typically do. I got into numbers-type fishing, and so I fished with nymphs and a variety of different things. And when I was in my early 20s, I came back to it and have never left since. Now, were you fishing while you were in high school? I was, almost every day. I yeah. figured you might be that guy. Yeah. That guy who was getting out of school if you went to school and you were racing to the river. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Were you an only child? Uh, no, I was uh, the fourth child, the youngest. My bro oldest brother, who fished the most, was in the Air Force at the time. So he got me into fishing. I probably fished a lot because I admired my older brother so much. And then when he was gone, I just kept fishing. So when he was in the service, yeah. What about your friends in high school? Or were you kind of a loner out there? <laughs> uh, I was. I had a lot of friends in high school, but... Uh, I was definitely the guy that was um, the fisherman or hunter at the time, too. So, so yeah, I, uh, I had a lot of uh, friends that when they wanted to go fishing, they'd call me. And uh, I bet uh, they did. Yeah. Some things never change, huh? <laughs> yeah, I was an amateur guide long before being a professional one. So at this point, you are still on a single hand rod? When you're in your teens? Yes. What kind of flies are you swinging? You know, at the time, uh, my you know my fly tying wasn't very sophisticated, and I was... Initially just using things like woolly buggers. Um, the first couple steelhead I remember catching in Lake Run Browns were with a crimson red woolly bugger. I would never think of using that again other than just for old time's sake or something. But, <laughs> but, but you caught fish, though. I did, yeah. I caught some couple steelhead and several Lake Run Browns. Um, so I, knew, I had faith that it would work. I just kind of got away from it at the time. And when did you decide, I would like to do this professionally? Oh, I, I think I always wanted to do this professionally. <laughs> I, I went to college. 
I was in the direction of going to law school. My undergrad was pre-law. But as soon as I got done with college, jumped in the drift boat, and, you know, I credit a local outfitter really steered me in the, the way I ended up because he came, approached me and said, you know, you ought to just guide for me for a year just so you can tell your friends that you did it when you're a lawyer sometime in the future, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I took him up on it, uh, Glenn Blackwood, who owns a local store here. Oh, and, Glenn Glenn? Uh, Glenn Glenn, yeah. The, who has one of the most extensive book collections I've ever and seen in yes, my life? Yes, absolutely, yep. I ah, totally, okay. totally th- give him credit for that. And anyways, uh, you know, never looked back since then. Wow. So when did you break free and start your own guiding company? Uh, you know, I moved up to Nuevo when I was in my mid twenty, late 20s, so probably six or seven years in. And at the time, it just didn't make sense to continually go through an outfitter. Glenn and I and his staff remain good friends, and um, they're great people, so... I can't really see you having any enemies, Kevin. That's the thing. I think you'd probably <laughs> remain great friends with anybody in your life. So anybody who hasn't met Kevin Feenstra might just associate you as the guy who is guiding uh, in Michigan. I mean, you primarily guide in Michigan, right? Yeah, I'm primarily on one big river system, the Muskegon. Mm-hmm. Um, the Muskegon is a, you know, if you're not familiar with it, it's a really long river. It's 230 miles long, and I guide for a variety of different species for about 80 of those miles, you know, and I try to add on to those miles every year. Uh, the steelhead part of the river, there's 46 miles, and the fish can't go any further. And we're going to talk about the Muskegon specifically, but everybody who does know Kevin, the first thing they say, besides you being the guy who really did a lot of pioneering of swinging for flies out here and fishing a certain style of fly and even using a double-hander, they go on to first start their sentence by saying how amazing you are. Everybody loves you. <laughs> and you're also one of the most humble human beings I've ever met. And that's why I'm here. Because I really want to kind of call you out for being really important to this industry. But you are the last person who will tell anybody that. So I'm going to do it for you. <laughs> okay, so you're on a single hand rod. You're guiding. At this point, you've got an amazing clientele, I'm sure. You start your own company. You remain friends with the guys at the shop. And then what happens? Um, you know, at this point, I'm pretty much constantly busy on a guiding basis. I, you know, I guide uh, all four seasons. If the weather's good, I'll guide through the winter. Um, having a family, I try to keep certain times of the year down. You know, that's mm-hmm. and, but I have great, really good staff now, and you know, our business is largely word of mouth. I'm, I maintain a website and stuff, of course, but I'm not a big social media person. So we just work hard and hope that we uh, do good for our people. When did you start using the double hand fly rod? Uh, while I was working in my early 20s for Great Lakes, I got my first two-handed rod. I was pretty oblivious to how to use it for the first few years. I used mostly shooting heads. Um, the technology and the fly lines was a lot different at the time. It was mostly based towards West Coast and uh, or European and anyways, the the net result was that the lines were not really ideal for what we have here, mm-hmm. whereas the technology's come a long ways now, and now we have great, great products, which makes it accessible to anybody. What year do you think this was, approximately? Probably, let's see, it was probably, uh, it was in the 90s, somewhere, yeah. In yeah. the 90s, even on the West Coast, I mean, there were obviously guys doing it, but it was nothing like it is today, not sure. even a shadow of what it is today. Were you the only guy out here doing that? Initially, there was not very many 
certainly not any guides. I mean, the Muskegon, which is now famous for kind of famous for two-handed fishing. I mean, I would if I saw somebody else doing it in a year, I would get kind of defensive thinking somebody was crowding in. Yeah. Now, that being said, my my best friend and somebody who still remains one of my best friends, Jeff Hubbard, um, who's a great guide on the Pier Marquette, was also very keen on doing this way back then, and he and I fished an awful lot together. He still remains one of the premier guides in Michigan. What kind of flies were you fishing at that time? You know, when I first started doing this as a guide, it was kind of by accident. Um, you know, I fish a lot for warm water species in the summer. I was fishing a big sculpin for smallmouth bass in the summer, and I happened to start catching summer run steelhead scamania on that sculpin. And I started thinking, well, maybe if I tried that in the fall for the steel, our main run steelhead, maybe, maybe something would eat it too. And uh, uh, the first time I went out and did it, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, here's... It's like every run I went to, there was steelhead taking this fly. So initially when I was in my 20s, most of the fishing I did was with dull, earth-toned, uh, either olive or tan sculpins. So are they feeding then when they're in the system? In, in the Midwest, they feed really heavily. Yeah. Okay, when they're in the fresh water, when they're in the rivers, they're feeding heavily. They are. They Our, our rivers are much easier run, I'm assuming, than a West Coast fish would be, you know, at most, they're running maybe 50 miles, and it's an easy run. I mean, there's no great steep gradient or waterfalls or anything. So, you know, they move upriver in a handful of days, and what are they going to do until spring other than, you know, munch on a sculpin or whatever's there. So is that what they're primarily feeding on then? Uh, it depends on the river system. What about the Muskegon? What is Muskegon, the Muskegon? Uh, Muskegon is a tremendous... Tremendously diverse forage base for the fish, so really you can... One of the neat ways things for me to learn is that I can throw things that look like just about anything and, or any, you know, species that lives. Sculpins, you know, we have an invasive species called a goby that's in the Great Lakes but now have come up into our big rivers. And, you know, it's pretty interesting for me because I know that it's something that's familiar to them in the lake, so... As they move up river, of course, they're going to keep eating something that they would eat in Lake Michigan. So I tie goby patterns. and It's also a, a river that has a tremendous amount of spawning fish in it. We have big king salmon run, typically, and then they feed on their own eggs in the spring. And then we have tremendous run of suckers and things. So there's always eggs in this river. And so things that you'd expect that egg-sucking leeches, things like that, work yeah. really well, too. What do you do with the mentality of chuck and duck? And before they were swinging streamers, how were they fishing primarily here? Well, you know, at the time, chuck and duck was the prevalent method. And in the big rivers, I mean, honestly, there's no way that you could run a guide service without doing some chucking and ducking during the high water mm-hmm. periods, and um, especially during the, you know, uh, melt-off in the spring. But at the time, chuck and duck was kind of the main way, and you were considered a purist if you were using an indicator on a rod, which is kind of... Wow! <laughs> so <laughs> if you were using a floating line with an indicator, that was considered more purist than chucking and ducking. So from the wet, Being from the West Coast, to me, that is jaw-dropping. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, and then eventually, of course, now it's different. Now if you're swinging flies, it's the, kind of the purest way and, <laughs> uh, you know, the other same nymph type stuff you guys talk about out West. But So did your customers fight you on it? Uh, they were... Well, they would look at me with a very strange look you know for example i remember uh guiding a guy who just absolutely didn't believe that it would work and at the time i was using a lot of single hand rods with teeny lines 
rather than two-handed rods with customers because that would have been just too foreign at the time. And I remember that he would, every time he'd cast, he'd turn around and talk to me. And he turned around and talked, and the rod was hanging behind him. And next thing I know, I heard the rod bouncing out of his hand yes. onto the front of the <laughs> boat. And I said, he said, whoa, you know, and the rest of the day I looked at his hands, and they were his knuckles were white all day from holding <laughs> that rod tightly. And uh, it just uh, it really took on a life of its own. You know, all my customers, I took them doing once. And after they had a tug, it was from then on they became swung fly people and they told their friends, and before I knew it, I was guiding nothing but swung fly through the fall and winter months. So, And has that stayed the same? Yeah, I, from middle of October until, you know, New Year's Day, all I do is swung fly type fishing. Now, did the industry fight you out here and label you a marketer for trying to do it differently? Uh, not really. Um, I, the only thing that they would have said at the time was that a two-handed rod was totally unnecessary. And you would have heard that from just about every direction but nobody argued the swinging flies. Well, swinging flies at the time, a lot of people really looked at that and said that's pretty cool because, I mean, out here it's everybody's dream at the time to actually get a steelhead to eat something without a sinker on it. Right. You know? So it's uh, it's been nothing but good. I mean, I, I love doing it, and I would do it every day that I'm free, you know, if yeah. I could. So you were well-received? I think so, yeah, I think so. Enter yeah. the double-hand rods. Yep. So then... You obviously at some point decided to make the transition from not only fishing a double-hander yourself, but also to having your clients fish the double-hander. How well-received were you with that? Uh, You know, initially it wouldn't have been well-received on the east side of the United States here. And I kind of credit the European lines that came in here and also the West Coast stuff that kind of blended together. And once the lines became Mm user-friendly, that was really the point at which people would spay cast from a boat here or from shore, you know, just took on. That's really what did it, was the change in the lines. Was there a part of you at all thinking, wow, I kind of have this all to myself. Do I want people to be doing this with me, or do I kind of want to keep this as my thing? You know, you've been doing this a long time, too. You know, at first I was quite defensive about it. You know, I'd see somebody else doing it, and I was like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, in hindsight now, it's been, I think it's been nothing good but good for, for the fishing here. It's a really low impact on the resource style of fishing that is fun to do, and you don't necessarily have to go out and catch a lot of fish to do it. So it, it's, it's a good thing. Well, let's talk about this fishery then. The Muskegon pours into... Lake Michigan. First into Muskegon Lake and then into Lake Michigan. A hundred years ago, the Muskegon was surrounded by a hundred foot tall pine trees. was initially a really beautiful and still is a very beautiful resource, but they clear-cut most of the rivers in West Michigan in order to rebuild Chicago after the big fire and a lot of the buildings. So our rivers became a highway for big logs, and the native species that were in our rivers were a lot of times wiped out. The river system here had grayling, and it had a lot of other different fish species um, there's no more grayling in Michigan, there, for the most part, other than a few locally planted places. But yeah. What else was in the river here? That uh, was native. A lot of warm water species, a lot of sturgeon. It had huge runs of sturgeon. Seriously? Yeah, and we still have a very um, remnant-type sturgeon run. And these were indigenous? These are indigenous lake sturgeon. They typically grow up to about 100 pounds. What migration were they following up to feed? Or were they coming They're in They're coming in to spawn. To spawn? Yeah. Are there still sturgeon in there? There are limited number of sturgeon. You'll usually see them in the spring when they're into spawn. Yeah. 
This is amazing. Okay, so when did they put Steelhead in? Steelhead and the Muskegon came in in the late 1800s. Okay, did they do Steelhead first or Salmon first? Uh, Definitely Steelhead. What was the reasoning for this? You know, I can't say the reasoning. I think, honestly, I think that they looked at some of the rivers in Michigan, and they were from out west, and they said, Hmm. you know, other than the mountains, we need some Steelhead in here. Right. Uh, there's a lot of people that will argue that because they come out of fresh water, they're not really steelhead or what. I'm sure you've heard that stuff like that. but uh, I may have heard that once or twice. You know, these fish are largely descendant from California fish. They became genetically unique with, to Michigan over time. So now we have our own kind of native strain they call little manistee or Michigan strain fish that are in here. Kevin, I have fish now in New York, Michigan, mm-hmm. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Ontario. I mean, I've kind of been around in this sure. in, in the Great Lakes, and the, the fisheries are okay, except the Michigan fisheries, and I will look anybody in the eye till the day I die, and I will tell them, the Michigan fisheries, specifically the Muskegon, fight as hard as any steelhead, uh, maybe with this, the exception of the Dean. They fight as hard as any BC steelhead I've ever caught. I can't say that, though, about Pennsylvania. I mean, when I fished the elk, I would rather, I think, have jumped off of a bridge onto <laughs> concrete than have fished the, the elk. Whereas the Muskegon, I, I really brag about, I boast about this fishery. Why are they so hot and strong? Um, you know, probably some of it is their forage base. You know, it's really hard to say exactly. We do have um, some wild fish in this river system. The fact that they have a relatively short run and that the river is at a good walking speed current you know i think a lot of the rivers where the fish don't fight hard a lot of it has to do with the actual physical nature of the river the fact that they don't have maybe as much oxygen or a food source or whatever what's the water temperature here on a good day um it ranges when the steelhead are in here the water temperature is typically anywhere from the mid 50s and then it drops slowly into the 30s by mid-december and actually some of the best swung fly fishing is in december yeah I because bet. we have the quantity of fish in there and we still have fairly good water temperatures but mm-hmm. you know one of the differences from the west coast is that our water is really really cold for a lot of the year i mean we yeah. we swing flies through the winter and it's 32 and a half degrees all winter Ooh, so it's yeah it's cold is a river like the elk are those are those fish naturally reproducing or are they stocked uh, I can't say 100% sure, but I would think that those a lot of those are stocked. And the fish here, are they naturally reproducing? It varies from river to river. In the Muskegon? The Muskegon, um, I would say on a given year, somewhere between 20 and 40% of our fish are wild. Oh, That's okay. just a guess. Do you think they fight harder? Uh, it's intangible, uh, the difference between them and the stocked fish. Mainly because uh, the way Michigan does it, I mean, they're taken from first generation. There's no brood stock here. Oh. They go directly from the river, they get the fish, and then they go right back, you know, into the river. So you'd have a really hard time. They used to clip fins on the planted fish, and you would really, it would be really difficult to tell the difference. But I know in some places there's a real, you know, and you would know there's a real difference between the stocked and the, the native fish, but... I can't see it here. Okay. Now, what about the salmon? You had said that steelhead were definitely put here before salmon were. So what's the story behind the salmon? The salmon were put here in the late 60s to control a bait fish called alewives. Oh, okay. This was mentioned to me the other day by Jerry. Sure. The alewives would die. You know, we have beautiful beaches on Lake Michigan, which Mm -hmm. are tourist attractions. And um, there were so many alewives dying, which are an invasive species, that... 
they would have to bring bulldozers in to cover up the dead fish, and of course the beaches would smell. So they were looking for a solution, so they dumped in Chinook and coho salmon and some of our river systems. Why were steelhead not enough? Do steelhead not eat them? Well, steelhead eat them, but steelhead eat anything. You know, when they're out in Lake Michigan, they might eat dead bees in the scum line or (laughs) whatever, whereas salmon, they need a pretty good-sized bait fish. So so they were put in to control this bait fish, which they did extremely well, to the point that this year we have hardly any alewives, and the salmon population is struggling, and so everybody's worried about the alewives now because they want them. Is it true they're going to stop stocking Chinook as a result? They already did in a lot of places. Now, that's kind of deceptive because, or that, maybe that's not, but it's, it's, the salmon don't need the stocking as much as some of the other fish because they are largely wild. A lot of our rivers get really warm in the summer. So, for example, a steelhead has to gestate in a river for a year. So they are susceptible to being killed by the warm water, whereas the king salmon when they lay their eggs, the little, the young hatch earlier, and they're on their way out by the time the water gets warm. So what you're saying is the steelhead, as fry, stay in the river system longer than the Chinook do. Correct. So when yep. the water temperature rises, they're susceptible to death. Exactly. If you look, came to this river in June, you'd be shocked by the millions of little baby steelhead that are in here. Oh, and yeah. by the time... Two weeks goes by and the water temperature is high 60s, 70s. You see very few of those little steelhead anymore. They become disoriented. The numerous other predator fish key on that and, <laughs> you know, it's a feeding frenzy in there. Because so. there's bass here, you said. Smallmouth make up a good portion of my business. There's also a lot of trout, walleye population, northern pike. And juvenile steelhead, they can coexist with those creatures? They can, to wow. some degree, yeah. By nature, this river would probably be a cool water fishery but we have dams that create warm water on it, and that's mm. there's a lot of this is a pretty complex thing with this river trying to keep cool water fish and migratory fish, so it's a remarkably resilient resource. Coming up, Kevin and I touch on conservation, and I can't help but ask about the controversial subject of chumming. Again, just a quick thanks to Blue Sky World Leaders. You can say goodbye to rebuilding short leaders, untying wind knots, or changing leaders during a hatch. The furled leader allows the angler to tie on tippet sections as the only leader adjustment necessary. With loop-to-loop attachments, great prices, and a company who is small enough to genuinely care, there is no reason not to check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. Talk to me, though, about when you were in the peak of your guiding career. How many days a year were you on the water? Well, the amount of days that I'm on is probably consistent with when I'm younger. It's just that when I first started guiding, I was guiding maybe 40 days a year, 50 days, and then I was fishing <laughs> yeah. 200 days of the year. Yeah. And now I'm guiding about 200 days of the year and fishing 50 or so, 50 or 60. It's a least. lot of days. It's a lot of days, so... Um, but at my peak, when I was, you know, in my late 20s, I was probably fishing 300 days of the year, either as a guide or mm-hmm. just fishing. So how much weight do you carry when it comes to conservation issues and Muskegon advocacy? Do you have any clout or weight? I'm not, you know, I'm probably not the most vocal person with stuff like that. I try to, when I say something, say, I say, try to say things that need to be said and not to say a whole lot more than that, so... Um, I know they listen to me, but I don't know what the level of that is. So. Is there anything right now in particular that you feel needs work 
out here? Anything that's worth bringing to the attention of the public? Uh, well, you know, it's it's a it's a funny thing out here. You know, I have friends that do a lot of different things in the in the fishing industry. Some of them are charter people. Some of them are, are bait or hardware anglers. And a lot of us agree, especially those of us who focus on the river, that we really need lower limits as far as how many fish are being taken in the river systems right now. Um, what is the limit? It's three per person per day, which is pretty... Three per person per day? Per day, yeah. So and what's the average return here of steelhead? As far as how many number, number of fish? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big run. It's in the... It's in the tens of thousands, you know, it's uh, probably, I'm guessing it's twenty five to 30,000 fish at least. Okay, so. but it's not a 200,000 return. No, it's it's less than 100,000, I couldn't say. It, it varies from year to year, of okay. course. It gives yeah. me an idea. I mean, yeah. some rivers are 3,000 return. You just, you just don't yeah. know. Uh, okay, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good size return. Yep. But the, is that making an impact on the fishery, three fish per day per angler? Are there enough no, anglers? No, it can handle that amount. Assuming that we have a lot of salmon in the river, because what happens is the years that we don't have king salmon, then the people that need to target fish to keep target the steelhead instead. Oh, okay. So, so they can keep salmon as well? So they can keep three yeah, salmon a day? And so the people that are targeting fish out in the harbor or in the lake that are coming this way, if they need to keep fish, they're going to keep salmon first, because that's out in the lake, that's the prize fish. But, but if the salmon aren't there, then they have to catch something. And so they immediately target the shallower water fish, which are the steelhead and the brown trout. So, And, of course, the number of fish harvested, no matter how you coat it, it's, it's going to affect the river fishery. If, if they're being kept, it doesn't matter where they're being kept. They're going to... Yeah, it's going to show. It's going to show. Yeah, so. Do Michigan residents do more harvesting than other states? There's a lot of really talented outdoorsmen out here, and there's such great hunting. Do you think that there's just a mentality of harvest out here? I think it's it's decreased. I mean, there's definitely more people putting fish back. The problem is that there's also more people using the resource, and there's also much, much more effective fishing tactics being used than, say, 15 or 20 years ago when, you know, now we're, a lot of people are... You know, they're just really good at catching fish with bait, and the numbers of fish get caught, and taking two or three fish a day does have its toll on things. So it's a remarkably great river, though. I mean, it's still we still have great fishing year to year. Um, this year we're a bit low, slow in starting, and uh, there's a lot of people that do suspect that maybe the harvest was a little too high this year. It could just be the weather. Maybe in another month we'll all be, <laughs> there'll be steelhead jumping around the boat. Who knows? But um, right now I'm covering you know, 15 miles of river in a day to catch one or two steelhead. So it's a, yeah. a lot of work right now. It is. Do you guide salmon? I guide salmon minimally until the steelhead. I use them as until I can, basically as soon as there's a steelhead in the river. You're out. We're, yeah. we're yeah. after the steelhead, yeah. How do you handle the mentality of people wanting to fish for fish on reds? You know, in fairness, that's always going to be a part of our fishery. Um, I would love to say that you can get away from fishing on the reds, but the reality is in a big river like what I'm on, you know, when the water gets high and we're at 4,000 CFS or whatever, uh, you're going to have a hard time catching a fish. The the entire river bottom's gravel, so no matter how you want to do it, 
somewhere in the river you're going to be fishing around a red whether you want to or not. So okay, that's actually that's interesting to know. Yeah. yeah. I just found out this morning that it is legal to bait on this river. Oh sure, yeah. Is that something that's is that a practice that's been happening for years out here? Um, it, it, by bait, do you mean? Bait on the hook or chum or they chum. So they chum. they literally. This is amazing to me because yeah. we do not have anything like this. But they literally have got buckets of roe. Yep. And they just scoop it into yep. the river. Um, is that something that's that's been around for over a hundred years out here? Uh, not for that long. Since the salmon arrived in this, probably the eighties, it it started to happen. Why? Initially, it was just some good anglers throwing a spoonful of eggs to help when they needed a little help or whatever, catching a fish. A steelhead. The steelhead. Okay. But then it morphed into what it is now where people carrying just vast amounts of eggs. And it's a very, it's the one thing I really worry about the image of our fishery to people out west when they hear about stuff like this and think, wow, you know, what are you guys doing out there, you know? But um, it's always present. Uh, it affects how many fish get hooked in a day on the river because it does make, you know, typically somebody fishing with spawn or bait, maybe they might catch five or six fish without the chum, but if you throw the chum in, that might double or triple, you know, so. Yeah, and my argument is why do you need to catch so many fish? Well, yeah, I mean, steelhead are such a special fish. I don't know, you know, you catch a couple a day, why would you need to catch but it's a different it's a different way of thinking things and uh and you're too nice to say anything even if you didn't like it. So. <laughs> well, they know they everybody knows that I don't like it and um you know, uh I understand why people do it and there's a numbers thing that goes on, you know, these guides are all competing with each other out here and if one guide is catching a gazillion fish, then the others even if they don't maybe they don't really like doing it, they feel obligated to do it. Oh, that's a shame. Is there any sort of, is there anybody really trying to promote education? It's going to sound like I'm being demeaning when I say trying to promote education, but I'm pretty blunt. Is there anybody out here who's really trying to educate a lot of these people uh, that they don't need to catch 20 fish in a day? Or it's okay if Joe Blow is catching more fish than you, if you're, if you're maybe fishing a different method that makes you happier? Is there anybody out there who's really being an advocate for just putting their foot down and, and trying to steer people in a, in a different mentality? Um, you know, part of it's the mentality, but, I mean, I have to be honest, a lot of it's our DNR, too. I mean, they don't, they don't want to change that. They made chumming illegal for a few years to come combat a fish disease, um, and then the restriction was lifted, and it became twice as bad as it ever was. So, so the fish disease was in the... Bait. There was a the concern that there was a fish disease called VHS, which was traveling around the Great Lakes, and they were worried that it might be spread more quickly through eggs. So they, for a few years, banned chumming. It was those were glorious years. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> was the fishing better for you? Well, um, or was it just a little more civil? Out it there? was more civil. Uh, everybody got along as guides. It was. I, I saw no downside to it. I mean, everybody seemed to get along. I didn't see any big movement for them to re-legalize chumming, but somebody must have made the right amount of noise because they lifted the ban, and next thing you knew, it was legal again, and here we are. So, Got it. Yeah. And I won't even force you to elaborate on that. So as a guide, you're a talented steelheader, a talented spaycaster, a talented fly tire, a talented swinger. <laughs> that sounds kind of dirty, but you know what I mean. <laughs> How do you handle 
taking somebody from the West Coast when they see that. Do you try to fish certain sections of river where there's not as much pressure? What's your game plan? Um, you know, I being out here every day, I know I have a decent idea of what's going on. And, you know, a lot of that, what we just talked about is a lot of the people don't really want you to see them doing it. So, I mean, I know what's going on and I know it's going on at a pretty high level, but um, a lot of times you would never even know what's happening, even though even though it might be 100 yards below us in the boat, I know exactly what's happening, but <laughs> your clients you don't. would you wouldn't have probably wouldn't know unless somebody was being really blatant about it. So, Got it. Talk to me about your flies. So I remember when we were fishing together, and I am not used to always... First of all, I'm not, I, at the time, I was not used to fishing out of a boat, and I certainly was not used to not casting as far. So I would cast a little far, and... I'd snag off and your flies at the time and I don't know the answer to what I'm about to ask you so just bear with me your flies were tied on shanks like on a standard hook and they were the same style of flies we were fishing out west except they did not have a stinger hook they were not on tubes basically every time that I bent out my hook you very kindly and calmly cut it off and tied another fly on for me and I remember giving you shit being like Kevin, why don't you change out your, like, tie on a, a stinger hook? Did you ever give? Uh, you know, actually, right now, I, I have gone, you know, I go through phases right now. Everything I tie is pretty much on a cotter pin, and I do use stinger hooks every day. So, yeah. So we gotcha. You got, yeah. We gotcha. Yeah. Good stuff. Talk to me about your flies now. Uh, well, initially, like, I told, earlier we talked about how I was using muted flies. Mm-hmm. I started adding a little bit of flash then a little bit more flash, and then I started paying attention to the guys on the river, which at the time, though things have changed significantly, at the time there was a lot of people fishing plugs on the river, and so I knew some of the really good plug runners, so I'd be like, what color is working today, you know? Just vicariously looking at what they're doing, I tried to incorporate it into the flies, and so um, the flies became different flash patterns. You know, it's kind of become its own kind of cool little science to figure out which flash... You know, you find some flash works when the clouds are out, some flash works when it's sunny, and some flash works better when it's cold. And and then there's times of year when the water's really cold and there's a lot of fish around that I'll fish the muted patterns again and just fish them deep and slow and catch fish on natural bait. So there's a lot of different ways that you can, can do this here. Did you ever read any grease lining books? I did. I can't think of the authors at the time, but tried it to some degree here with floating lines. I've caught fish with floating lines here. It's just, it's a lot more in, intensive than what I'd prefer to do, which, you know, is... Get down? Get down, yeah. You With the water temperatures being so cold here, you really do... The window of catching fish near the surface shrinks pretty quickly here because right now with the water temperature at 55 degrees, we could do, you know, minimal sink tip, but in another week or two when the water temperature drops into the... Low to mid-40s, you have to be down, and it's just more efficient to use a sink tip. Do you have kind of what we have where there's winter-run fish and summer-run fish? Or oh. are they the same fish but just entering at different times of the year? Because you know the difference sure. between, between our winter-run fish yep. entering mature versus our summer-run fish entering immature. Okay. Do your fish enter mature year-round, or what's how does it work out here? The main run that I deal with is from late September until middle of May or until June. Mm-hmm. 
depending on how long I want to fish for them. The fall and winter run fish are similar in size to what we get in the spring run. Typically we probably get 30 or 40 percent of our fish in the fall and winter okay. and then in the spring the other 60 percent come and join them. Do they enter the system in a mature state full of eggs and sperm? I believe they do, yeah. Or is there ever a time of year where they enter in an immature state? Not really. We do get what you'd call half-pounders out west. We do get skipper steelhead that come in that are two- or three-year-old fish. Um, they're a lot smaller, um, but they're random entrants. I mean, this time of the year you'll catch them mixed in with the adult fish. Yeah, if you factor in that they're coming in in the winter, the water is cold and slowing their metabolism, they're a little lethargic, you know, at times, depending on the temperature, and they're mature, you basically have a winter-run fish. We do, yeah. So, of course, you're going to fish winter techniques down deep, yep. flies with a lot of motion. Have you done any sort of snorkeling on this river? I've done a lot of snorkeling, yeah. Talk to me about it. What have you noticed? Um, fascinating. The first time I did it, uh, it was actually one of the most revealing things because I've been fishing sculpins in the river for years, and I know that sculpins exist, what I didn't realize was that those gobies had come into the river, and five minutes into snorkeling, the first time I noticed that the river was full of gobies versus sculpins. Wow. Which okay. was a big thing, and nobody else around that I know of knew that there was gobies in the river at the time, so um, it was kind of a cool thing to discover, you know, in a whole... For a couple months there, I tied entirely different flies, you know, and it was... Uh, it was a really interesting thing, and some of the other bait fish that I imitate now, I had no idea before I started snorkeling and doing some underwater photography and stuff that they even existed so what about fish behavior was there something shocking that you noticed because i'm assuming you snorkeled when the steelhead were in to some degree although water temperatures are somewhat prohibited you know uh one of the things that i've noticed more and more with steelhead is that they like timber okay. uh, in this river and so i've become more of a when i was a kid i fished a lot of spinners you know um bladed baits and I'm doing a lot of the similar type thing except with swinging flies now. Yeah. When the river's busy everybody's fishing the main beautiful steelhead runs and if I need to catch a fish I'll go look for some timber and it saves the day a lot of times when the fishing would be difficult otherwise. Well the fishing is difficult right now. Mm -hmm. The water is low for the most part I understand and the weather's bright. Yep. Is that accurate? Yeah we had 70 degree weather this first few days this week. It was very uh challenging fishing <laughs> a couple pulls a day and if you hooked them it was you're lucky and if you didn't it was a long day so what have you found happens to that fish behavior in such circumstances they definitely just like any big trout species they're a cover loving fish and so they stick you ever, i've looked at a lot of john mcmillan's underwater footage and i've noticed that the fish will almost like an ostrich stick their heads underneath rocks Sure. But they leave the rest of their body out in the open. That's, do they do they'll that? They'll do that with timber, too. Yeah, I've seen them in small creeks do that all the time. They'll put the front half of their body under a log, and the rest of the body will be sticking out. So, so they're just not looking? Not really looking. You might, on a cloudy day, you'll go down the river, which is a crystal clear river, and if you know where to look, you'll see the steelhead. Mm -hmm. And then you'll go back the next day on a sunny day, and you'll be like, man, there's no fish here. Well, it's not that the fish aren't there. They're just... They really are hiding. Are you always fishing out of a boat? Do you do any walk and wading? I do a lot of walk and wading in my free time in the winter. I love to walk and wade. We have really beautiful walk and wade rivers like the White River and the Pure Marquette and the mm. Rogue River. Yeah. There's a lot of really good wading water here. Uh, you don't need a boat. It's just big rivers like the Muskegon. It definitely helps to be able to cover water quickly to have boat to your disposal. And I'm getting older and lazier, so... 
a boat to <laughs> a boat to step through the run is pretty nice. So you've been guiding for over twenty years, then. Right around twenty years now. Yeah. And you're not burnt out. No. No, you don't no, seem I, burnt out. No, I love it. I, there's been times, but it's you know I love the steelhead, and they we just look forward to the steelhead run. You know, we summer can be kind of long and. Smallmouth season winds down, and then we have a few weeks of king salmon. And king salmon make everybody want steelhead to be around because mm-hmm. they are what they are. So, <laughs> and you know, out west, your salmon are you have a lot of grabby fish, but our salmon run is it's hard to get fish to take a swung fly. Yeah, so. I've heard it's a little different. Yeah, have you noticed an abundance of people? in the Midwest who are just tired of working jobs that they hate and the nine to five that they detest and they're trying to find a living in this industry? I've seen it a lot with guiding. You know, as you know, the common theory with guiding is that it's an easy job that anybody (laughs) can do. And let me tell you, Midwest is some of the hardest guiding in this area. I mean, between the weather and the general competitive nature of the business and keeping equipment going when it's cold and everything else it is a really hard job and so you'll have a lot of people that either they quit their job and want to start guiding or retire from the regular job and they want to start guiding and they quickly find that it's a much much harder job than what you'd think and the vast majority of them don't last a year you know just yeah it's It's, a tough it's harsh it's a harsh reality for sure I'm going to ask you something that might make you a little bit uncomfortable. And it is, don't worry, it's nothing too, it's nothing inappropriate. <laughs> Do you ever look at all the credibility from a lot of the newer people out here who haven't been doing it for even half as long and feel a little tinge of just, hey, like that, you know, I, I was the guy who brought it out here and you're getting credit for things. I mean, does that ever, does that ever bug you? Uh, it has bug, bug, you know, I'm human and it has definitely see something or somebody points it out to you and uh, you kind of get goaded on and you um but uh you know the honest truth is that the crew of people that are in the industry here all know who's kind of for real and who's not and um somebody can promote something for a little while but ultimately it just becomes obvious that it's uh it's not the real thing and it kind of goes away so if something were to happen to you tomorrow, and God forbid you were gone, and thank goodness you're so young, we don't have to worry about this, knock on wood. <laughs> but what would you want to be remembered as out here? Uh, you know, I think if I had my choice, it would just be as somebody who was a, a good steward of the resource that set a exam- good example on the river and that, you know, maybe did something that helped a positive some positive things happen in the fishing in my area. What would you like to see anglers in this area do to also be stewards of the sport? It really comes down to just treating the resource in a way that's, you know, leaves something for somebody else to enjoy it as well. The whole do under others thing sort of comes through with that. So, yeah. yeah. Kate, let me do a quick fire up questions at you and then I'll, I'll wrap this up. Okay. When you're swinging your fly, mm-hmm. in your opinion, did you want that fly being presented in front of the fish butt first or side first? I think the way I generally encourage people is side first, but I'm not somebody who places a whole lot of concern on that uh, point. I know there's people that overthink things a little too much, and I think uh-huh. it probably is overthinking too much. So, 
Tell me the number one guy trick that you tell your clients where they have an aha moment. You know, for somebody that's never swung flies before, I mean, the most obvious one that people have a hard time grasping around here is just to make sure you let the fly swing all the way around, you know? So you get fish you on the dangle. Fish on the dangle, yeah, that's the bonus fish. When you're in the boat, it's the ultimate trick is that I can usually add a fish to your day if I <laughs> lift the anchor at the right time and the boat pushes towards the fish. <laughs> that was my next question because <laughs> you're obviously back rowing, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm anchoring. I'm stepping Oh, you're anchoring. anchoring. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, and I have a pretty elaborate winch on the boat that just steps me through really nice, so it's, uh, it's a really pleasant way to fish. But there are days where, you know, there's tricks with the boat that you can do that greatly increase your catch you know i mean if i'm having a day where i don't get a standard pull from a fish i'll put the fit the boat directly on the run and i'll literally push the fish to the back of the run and usually when they're at the back they'll bite so mm-hmm. um, but those are just things you learn with time i guess that, mm-hmm. are you ever planning on teaching anybody how to spay cast while not guiding i've done it before um you know i'm i guess i'm a a decent spay caster but generally in this area if I have my druthers I send the spay casters to Peter Humphreys who you met or to my friend Bob Brendel we are blessed with a couple really really good spay casting instructors and I don't feel like there's any need for me to <laughs> I'm the fish catching guy I'm not necessarily the spay casting guy. So. I love it so what is next for you Kevin that's a good question. I, I'm trying to do a little more writing right now. Um, Ooh, what about? Uh, there'll be steelhead things. And, you know, the last few years I've done video projects, but we're not in the middle of anything like that. So, you know, I, and I love photography. That's kind of my other hobby. So uh, whenever I can get out and do that, that's the next thing, too. But uh, and I love guiding. I mean, vi- guiding is vicarious fishing, so... Whether the rod's in my hands or somebody else's, it's it's all good. Well, thank you very much for taking time out of your day. Thank you for having me, April. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes.